We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. There's a whole debate about when will we reach the sort of peak demand for oil and gas. But right now, we still have growing demand for oil and gas. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast for MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm James Rogers, a financial columnist at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Welcome back, Stephanie. I know you've had a busy few weeks. You've been all over the world, I believe. I really have, James, and it's great to be back. And it's nice to finally host an episode with you. Likewise, likewise. Really looking forward to this episode today. And speaking of this episode, James, I've been thinking. We talk about a lot of new ideas on this show, really new ideas, like so-called digital twins, which are literal copies of your body that could be used in healthcare in the near future, or de-extinction, meaning, yes, bringing animals back to life, real-life Jurassic Park. It sounds like it's straight out of science fiction, doesn't it? It does, and that de-extinction episode is coming up. But that's not the world we live in, at least not just yet. And today, we're talking about what makes the world we live in, well, possible, at least for now. That's right. Oil still makes the world go round. And the price of oil has an impact on just about everything, from the personal, like how much you pay to fill up your gas tank or buy groceries, to the more abstract, like how oil prices impact the broader economy. So today we're turning our attention to oil with one of the world's top oil analysts. Halima Croft is Global Head of Commodity Strategy, a Middle East and North Africa research at RBC Capital Markets part of the Royal Bank of Canada. She and I spoke about the current state of the oil market, where things may be headed later this year, as well as a few of the emerging ideas and challenges that she's keeping an eye on. Before we get started, Halima, could you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you made your way to where you are today? Yes, I have a little non-traditional background for a job in the financial services industry. I made my way into covering energy and the geopolitics of energy. After I did my PhD at Princeton, I joined Central Intelligence Agency right after 9-11. And I was part of a group that was looking at worldwide threats to oil supply. I covered Nigeria. So Started at the CIA, did a pit stop at the Council on Foreign Relations, where I was on a task force on energy and national security, and then found my way to Lehman Brothers. And then I was at Lehman, I was at Barclays, and I've been in RBC now for almost nine years. Wow, that is that is quite the career trajectory, I have to say. So do you want to talk us through what's been happening this year in terms of oil prices? Sure. I mean, this has been a year where we've seen significant volatility in oil prices. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we had this massive run up in energy prices after Russia invaded Ukraine. And there had been an expectation in the early months of the war that there'd be a significant disruption of Russian supplies because of the international sanctions that were being placed on Russia. But then the focus really shifted over the summer 
to concerns about recession, about interest rate hikes. And we basically said we went from a market that was fearing Vladimir Putin to one that was really fearing Jay Powell. And so right now we have oil prices really stuck. And again, it's this fear of recession, about demand that has been weighing on the market. On the supply side, though, you also have the fact that Russian oil exports have remained high despite international sanctions. And so it was the disruption that wasn't when it came to Russian supply. So I think that is also weighing on the market. If you kind of look to the more sort of recent past, everybody was excited about China's reopening, you know, when the year began. But today, concerns around demand continue to weigh on energy. Can you talk a little bit about China and the demand story these days? This was supposed to be the really big story for the oil markets was the China reopening. I mean, it's extraordinary where energy prices were, given that we had so little demand in China because of the zero COVID policies and the really strong, intrusive mobility restrictions. And so when China decided to exit zero COVID, there was this view that you could see this massive uptick in demand. And we certainly have seen an increase in oil demand in China. But there are still concerns about manufacturing sector in China and questions about, was this reopening oversold as a story? Is it going to be a more gradual China oil demand story as opposed to essentially everything all at once when it comes to the China reopening? Continuing on this thread in the United States, um, how do you view the connection between energy prices and rate hikes at the Federal Reserve? I would say that the rate hike concerns has really been a key driver of the softness in oil prices. Again, we, we thought about a market, think about you know, last year, the first half of the year, once you know Russia crossed the border in Ukraine, and there were the announcements of all the sanctions, the market attention was on what would we be potentially looking at in terms of an energy shock. And then with Powell and rate hikes and concerns about inflation, the market mood shifted towards what could happen on the demand side from aggressive rate hike action. So again, I think of a market that pivoted from concerns about Putin and supply disruptions to concerns about whether this path of rate hikes would have a very severe effect on demand for oil. The Fed has been raising interest rates in an effort to bring inflation back down to 2%, and it's trying to do that without tipping the U.S. economy into recession. It depends who you ask, but many economists believe the Fed has already raised rates too fast, while others think it may need to do more to bring inflation back down. And speculation about whether the U.S. economy and the global economy can avoid a recession has a lot to do with where the price of oil is sitting today. Back to the conversation. Now, even though the price of oil has a major impact on how much everything costs, a lot of this is very abstract. But how about the price of gas at the pump? Can listeners anticipate further relief this summer, or are we going to see a return to higher prices in the U.S.? Well, what is important to think about when we think about last year is that the Biden administration was 
very, very focused on keeping retail gasoline prices contained. And so you know, we released 200 a million barrels from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an effort to keep oil prices contained and palatable to U.S. consumers. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or SPR, is a complex of caverns full of oil on the Gulf Coasts of Louisiana and Texas. And last year, the Biden administration released many millions of barrels of oil from the SPR to fight inflation and drive down high gas prices. But it's a reserve. There's only so much oil in those caves, and the administration is now in the process of buying back oil to refill the SPR. Back to Croft. The question would be, if, for example, macro fears subsided, if there was more of a focus on you know, the fundamentals, if we started to see some supply tightnesses because of OPEC or other producers, again, I would watch carefully what's happening with Russia. If we were to get into a, a higher price environment, what would be the tools at the disposal of the U.S. government? We've already had announcements that we are going to start buying back for the SPR. And so it doesn't look like we have that key tool left in the toolbox if we were to get into a, a higher price environment. When we're back, we're going to dig into the transition from fossil fuels to renewables and hear Croft's thoughts on a few of the big new ideas in energy. That's after the break. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, Halima Croft talked about the current state of play in oil today and the concerns that she believes are keeping prices low. In the second half of our conversation, we're turning to the energy transition or what happens to oil as the transition to renewable energy gains momentum. Will oil soon become a relic of the past or will we be relying on it for many years to come? And beyond that, what sort of challenges does renewable energy pose? So Halima, what do you think? Have we hit peak demand in the US? And if so, what does that mean? There's a whole debate about when will we reach the sort of peak demand for oil and gas? And certainly we will be watching the, the uptake when it comes to electric vehicles. But right now we still have growing demand for oil and gas. And Part of the reason why we did not get the 
energy spike that everyone was concerned about last year is that, for example, we had a warm winter in Europe. And so we did not have the sort of fears about deindustrialization playing out. And so I do think it's going to be important as we think about next winter, if we get a colder climate, are we going to start to see more issues around rationing, more issues around sort of higher prices? And so for now, we, we avoided the worst case outcome. But you know, demand for oil and gas is, again, it's going to remain strong for some time as countries figure out the best way to pursue transitions. I want to ask you another question about the energy transition. But before I do, for listeners who may not be familiar with it, can you please explain what OPEC is? So OPEC is a group of sovereign producers that are part of this organization where they meet several times a year to collectively manage the oil market in terms of supply. They make decisions to collectively increase production, reduce production based on market conditions. Now, thinking about this energy transition, how are the producers and specifically OPEC preparing for it? What's so interesting, we saw this when actually oil went negative, was there was a whole lot of discussion about have we hit peak demand and who are going to be the losers if we've hit peak demand? And people looked at the OPEC producers and they said, wow, they are really going to lose out. When Croft says oil went negative, she's referring to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, which slowed or shut down economies around the world. As a result, demand collapsed, and so did oil prices. It made people wonder, had we already reached peak demand, or the moment that the world would be using the most oil? And however that demand story plays out, Croft believes that some oil producers have an innovative transition strategy in place, which includes, believe it or not, lower emission barrels of oil, or literally oil that is less carbon intensive to produce. But that's not the only element of the strategy, which in Croft's view is designed to keep these producers stable and relevant for many years. One of the things that I think is very interesting is that the Middle Eastern producers, the Gulf state producers, have really hedged their bets on the transition where they continue to invest in traditional fossil fuels because they basically say that they have the cheapest barrels and they would say the lowest emissions barrels. And so they think that these are the the transition barrels that will be needed in terms of the traditional fossil fuel sector, where at the same time, they use the proceeds from the sale of oil to invest through their sovereign wealth funds in a lot of the technologies for the transition or the type of companies that will benefit from the transition. I think about the investments in ride-sharing companies like Saudi Arabia, public investment fund has made big investments in aqua power. And so they are using proceeds from traditional hydrocarbons to invest in energy transition technologies. If there's a big new idea in oil, is this diversification strategy it? Again, what I think is fascinating is 
the way these countries that are the largest oil producers are basically setting themselves up to remain incredibly relevant in an energy transition story. That sort of multi-strategy approach, I think, really warrants close watching. On another note altogether, we talk a lot about the geopolitical problems related to oil, and especially the thorny political issues that persist because of US dependence on oil. But renewables don't offer such a rosy picture either, and although the Inflation Reduction Act represents an attempt to confront some of these challenges, should we be talking more about how China dominates clean energy supply chains? A hundred percent. We've spent so much time thinking about the sort of geopolitics of energy. We've thought about like small number of countries dominating production of hydrocarbons and what does that mean for global security? If we want to think about the the coming geopolitical challenges of the transition, it's a hundred percent China's dominance of the entire value chain for renewables and real issues around access to supply, but also you know processing. I mean, think about graphite, where not only does China control a significant amount of the supply, but they control almost all of the processing for graphite. And I think the, the IRA was an attempt to confront this, this challenge, but you know, going forward, we really are gonna be playing catch up. And I think there's also beyond simply China's dominance of the supply chain. It's also just about the new diplomacy of renewables in terms of how we engage with countries that are key sources of critical minerals. Like all of these issues that we dealt with when it came to traditional hydrocarbon producers, I think we're also going to see them when it comes to critical minerals. And we need to, in order to meet these targets of electrification, we're going to need to source and process a lot more critical minerals. And this is going to become an increasingly important focus of Western policymakers and an increasingly difficult challenge to resolve. We spoke about your background at the beginning of this conversation. How does it shape the way you view oil? Well, I think the what sort of sets me apart from my peers as oil analyst is I'm very focused on what are the calculations made by oil producing nations about how they manage their oil policy? What does oil fund? What are the impediments to taking additional action? A man I was very close to, and I, I thought of him as a mentor, Mohamed Sanusi Barkinda, he was the former Secretary General of OPEC. He died last year, but he was Nigerian and he was a great student of history. And he would say that you can't be an oil analyst without being a geopolitical analyst. And again, that's why I cover OPEC and why I love covering OPEC is you sit in the room with the ministers who control the revenue stream for these really important countries and how they think about oil policy is through the lens of what can oil do for their nations. And so oil is about the whole sort of state project. And so to me, it's, it's if you wanna think about covering Saudi or Kuwait or any of these nations in terms of their oil strategy, you have to think more broadly about the, the government there and what they're looking to achieve. 
Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Halima Croft. To learn more about the dynamics of the oil market, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm James Rogers. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoft, and Katie Ferguson. Michael McDowell mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Tim Roston was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.